Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Myanmar coup in February 1st, 2021 shocked the world and an opening that had fostered hopes for democratization and economic development. The Tatmadaw, Myanmar's military, reversed a decade's worth of changes and sparked a civil conflict that has continued for two years since the coup. But why did the military launch this coup? What reasons do the Tatmadaw give for seizing such a central role in the country's affairs? Oliver Slope, a reporter who was based in Myanmar over the past decade, shares his on-the-ground experiences in his recent book, Return of the Junta, Why Myanmar's Military Must Go Back to the Barracks, published by Bloomsbury earlier this year. Oliver Slope is an award-winning multimedia journalist, previously based in Southeast Asia for more than a decade. He's recently returned to the United Kingdom, where he works for the BBC. Today, Oliver and I talk about his history in Myanmar, how the military grew to see itself as the protectors of the country, despite what the people may actually think, and the complicated conflict in Rakhine State. So, Oliver, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I, I want to start by asking about your experience with Myanmar. I mean, your book is based off of your years reporting on the ground in the country and around the country. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your own personal history is with the country. What brought you there and how long were you there? Sure, yeah. Hi, and, th- and thanks a lot for, for having me on. Uh, and with regards to, I guess, my, my time in Myanmar, I arrived there back in 2012 uh, and ended up staying right through to 2020. So I um, I guess I saw a lot of that, quote, you know, quote unquote, transition from, from military rule to dictate, uh, so to democracy. Uh, when I arrived in early 2012, that was just over a year uh, after Aung San Suu Kyi had been released from prison and, uh, you know, hundreds of political prisoners had also been released. Um, and then that in 2012, not long after arrived, was also the by-election that saw uh, the National League for Democracy it, well, it entered Parliament for the first time. And that was a time of real real optimism in the country. And there was a real sort of belief that things were, were moving forward. And then I stayed right through. So I, as, as a journalist, I was working there, uh, firstly for some um, local out, local media outlets, um, and ended up becoming an editor at Frontier Myanmar, which some of your listeners may be mm. may be familiar with. Uh, and then reported right through, as I say, to the the, the the 2015 election that year. I reported on that from in the build up to that across the country, and also on the election day itself from Mandalay. Uh, and that's when this book really the, the 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 germ of the idea of the book came about around that 2015 time. Um, and this is something I write about in the book. At that time, it was. Um, because Myanmar's sort of direction at that point was quite an optimistic one. Um, at that point, I started working on a book which was largely sort of a travel, a light-hearted travel log. I've been traveling around the country, and the idea was to document some of the voices of the people I've met along the way, this kind of light-hearted look at, um, as I say, what, what looked to be a positive transition. But things, have, of course, got a bit more, a bit different, a bit more serious in 2017. Uh, that was the year of the Rohingya crackdown. Uh, and I've reported pretty extensively on that, both from the Myanmar side of the border up in Rakhine State, but also over in Bangladesh, where the, um, the Rohingya refugees were, were fleeing to. And Myanmar's kind of direction at that point became very, very different. It was no longer this uh, optimistic tra- trajectory. It was very, it was much darker, much more sinister with that kind of brutal crackdown on the Rohingya. And I realized that a kind of different book needed to be told, one that was slightly much more serious and one that really, you know, looked at the the deep underlying issue at that point the idea was to look at what were some of the hindrances let's say to democratic reform and of course 
the major one even then this was before the coup was the military so i kind of this was about 2018 19 was remolding the book a little looking much more closely at the military and its legacy across the country in a number of key areas um and then of course the the coup happened in 2021 and i realized okay well i had this book um that was looking at the military and i, I fine-tuned it a little more um and and yeah, as i say sort of delved deeper into some of the underlying issues where the military's legacy sort of remained um this was in the areas of violence uh, it's violence against the people which we're seeing today but it also goes back you know as far as the 1960s and beyond um it's control of the education system it's control of the economy and then sort of the, the divisions between ethnic groups in Myanmar. So that was really how, how the book came to be. Uh, and as I say, I ended up staying until um, 2020. Uh, I was in Yangon when, when COVID hit. And at the time, I was sort of between Bangkok and, and Yangon at that time. And I'd planned to sort of go over to Bangkok for a couple of, well, what was a couple of weeks, really, and come back and finish my reporting in Myanmar, mainly in Naypyidaw, actually, where, which is the sort of military-built capital. But of course, COVID hit. And then I was planning to go back after COVID, but then, of course, the coup took place. And I realised um, there was sort of no way really, because I sort of reported pretty critically on the military even before the coup. And then after the coup, I realised there was sort of no opportunity to go back, sadly. So I finished my reporting um, from Bangkok mainly uh, and finished the book. And of course, we are, you know, here we are today. The book's being released um, back just a few weeks ago. You know, let's get into talking about the military. I mean, you 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 talk about the the Tatmadaw having this um, sense of, I mean, obviously there there's a sense of superiority, but it's one that they justify on this image of being the protectors of the nation. You know, um, stretching back to uh, the Second World War and kind of even before that. Um, you know, I, and kind of kind of where does this and and they see themselves as saviors and protectors of the nation, even regardless of what ordinary uh, Myanmarese people might might think. Um, I guess from from a historical standpoint, where where does that view come from? What in um, Myanmar's history, uh, where does this sense that they are the protectors and the saviors of the nation come from? Yeah, I think as you say, it goes back really to its its foundation. I'd say there's sort of three major factors in the early years of, of independence. So Myanmar got its independence from, from the British in 1948. Uh, the Tatmadaw was founded a few years before that during World War II as um, it linked up with the Japanese Imperial Army to kind of oust the British allies from what was then British Burma. Um, and that, that kind of the Tatmadaw is a continuation in many ways of that original Burma independence army. And that was a, you know, an anti-colonial fighting force that was popular among the people. Um, and I think they, they view themselves. So I think that, that the idea of that you have themselves as the save the nation goes back partly to their role they played in, in sort of ousting the British in the 1940s. But, but, but then I think beyond that as well, there are big factors. I think in, you know, when, when Burma gained its independence in the forties, the country, there was really, the country was in a very kind of flimsy situation. There was no guarantee that the, the country as it is today would continue because there was sort of breakup of, there were many, many different groups with many, many different interests that the, the Tatmadaw as it was, was a pretty weak institution at this point. But then in the fifties, it underwent pretty drastic reforms, um, you know, underwent huge kind of investment in terms of its training, its um, procurement of weapons and arms, in terms of building up its uh, number, the number of soldiers. So then it became this sort of quite powerful institution. And one, I think one of the factors, again, as it sees itself today as sort of this protector against invading forces is sort of the language it uses. And a major 
incident which doesn't get that much doesn't spoke about that much of that sorry that often was the invasion into the well say invasion insurgent if you will into northern burma of the the, the kmt the kuomintang who was sort of many of them there was a unit that was fleeing south from obviously the chinese chinese civil war and they based themselves in northern burma and were essentially attempting to go back into china and using northern burma as a base but from the perspective of what was in the rangoon government this was an invading force on their territory and it took a, it took a number of years, and with the help of um, the PLA, they actually managed to remove the KMT from in, in about the fifties and sixties, in part through military force, in part through sort of diplomatic force. Uh, and again, I think that's a narrative that tells itself that it was managed to remove this again foreign invader. This is sort of again part of its narrative towards itself um, that it has protected the nation. And then I think a really drastic step. Um, in why the TAP model is the way it is today it was 1962 and they win military coup then Myanmar in the 1950s and 1960s was you know a, a, you know it wasn't necessarily a peaceful country but it was a somewhat democratic country um, but that really changed in 1962 when they win took power and really drastically changed uh, many many aspects of sort of situation in Myanmar um, and really sort of created this this state within a state that the TAP model has become really sort of, again, build up its capabilities even more, um, took control of the economy. And then successive kind of leaders of the military beyond that have, have only taken that further. So in 1988, there was a massive um, anti-military protest, pro-democracy protest, if you will, led by students. And that came pretty close to toppling the regime at the time. But rather than you know lead to reforms and lead to the military um, opening up and and whatnot, it, it went the other way. It sort of went further in on itself. It built up its capabilities. It... Uh, enhances distrust of sort of foreign forces. So really, it's a sort of continuation of different leaders until we've got to where we are today with someone like Min Ong Lying, who who also buys into that narrative as the tap middle of the savior of the country. Who, again, you know, has they have they had. I think it's important to consider on this is that senior people in the tap middle in particular have no interaction almost from the minute their the minute their education begins to the minute that, to today. With the general public, they you know they go to military schools, they live in military compounds, their socialising is done with similarly minded military people, so they don't understand. There's a massive disconnect, a huge disconnect between themselves and the the population, which is why I think you have this, as you mentioned, this complete lack of understanding of how they're viewed by the people. And I think, as if you look at Myanmar today, um, the I think the military has never really, hasn't been popular since the fifties and sixties, but it's never been as despised as I think it is by the vast majority of the population today. Yeah, I wonder if you might get into that isolation a bit more um, in terms of just how members of the military, I guess, in some ways, they how they live their lives, where they're placed in in Burmese in Myanmarese society. Um, I mean, you actually, I mean, you actually get to talk to some members of the junta. I mean, usually after they've been kicked out of office. Um, <laughs> yeah, but even then they have very, <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but they, but even they often had quite, uh, uh, at best maybe nuanced views of what, of the military's place in, in Myanmar. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of, as I say in the book, I think the, I met a, probably, I probably interviewed maybe around half a dozen, um, sort of senior generals during the time in Myanmar. And there were, there were some kind of variety in there that, personalities and whatnot but i think all of them held on to this same belief that i've spoken about um as a couple of came to mind was a i think he'd been a lieutenant, former lieutenant general and i met him in in napidor back in 2015 maybe um and you know he had spent his life again in military schools 
um, in military social service. He now lived in, at this point, he lived in Napidor, which is a military built kind of fortress capital in the center of the country. Um, so he, again, sort of book, um, bought into this belief. He, he really didn't accept any, any criticism whatsoever of the military's role. I remember he got very angry when I put it to him that the uh, military was not popular among the people. Um, he, you know, threw up his arms in, in outrage and said, how dare you sort of say this sort of stuff. But, and that was again, a clear, cause while that was, while he was saying this to me, I was having obviously conversations with friends and sources and colleagues around the country and that it wasn't necessarily a hatred of the military back then, but it was a strong kind of belief that it was a hindrance to this sort of movement towards democracy. Um, the one figure I did meet who had, I would say slightly more nuanced view was someone called David Abel. And he was, uh, he's now sadly passed away, but I met him in, I think again, 2015, 16. And he was sort of the, what's known as the economic head of the military back in the eighties and nineties. And he really wanted, at least what he said to, to me in this interview was that he really believed in a massive economic reform that removed some of the economic power of the military. Um, but that that wasn't allowed by the senior figures in the military at the time. But even he sort of, even though he had slightly more nuanced views, he still held on to the belief as well um, that the military was was doing what it was doing for the good of the country and these sorts of things. And I really think it's important to reflect on that because you really don't get to the top of the military, the Tatmadaw in particular, without holding on to that view that you know, the military is doing good for the country. It's a very, um, it's, it has a very, you know, to, to be at the top of the military, you have to have this mindset very strongly. And we see it from the top military leaders today as well, who are really kind of very inflexible in the way they view things in the country. So Myanmar's, you know, it's, it's been in some form of um, civil conflict for, for decades, usually with the, um, the, the ethnic minority uh, armed groups kind of in other parts of the country. Um, I mean, were you able to, to report on some of those um, on some of those ethnic armed groups, um, ethnic minority armed groups during your time in, in Myanmar? Yeah, I got it too. So Myanmar's a pretty, <laughs> yeah, comp- I guess, complicated place when it comes to conflict. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say it's the most complicated in the world because, of course, there are places that there are so places like, you know, Syria, Middle East. But, you know, there are this, I think in Myanmar, to try and break it down on a, on a sort of sim- simple level, you have the dominant Bamar group in the center and then ever, really ever since the 40s, 50s, We've had sort of dozens of ethnic groups around the periphery who have been fighting against the central government for their own versions of whether it's control, federalism, their own autonomy. They all have different kind of motivations and needs. And yeah, as you say, there's, there's I don't know, probably half a dozen more prominent groups. And I try to kind of cut, there's a particular chapter I look at um, that I think it's called Life on the, the Margins is the chapter which looks at kind of the history of conflict. And I tried, because I've traveled to sort of most of these regions during my time there. And tried to kind of draw out some of their um, their motivations and some of their issues with the government. Um, and it really stretches you in the west. On the west side, you sort of have the Rakhine conflict and the Rohingya conflict has been one of the more do- well documented aspects of that. But there's also sort of the Rakhine conflict, which is going on today with the the Arakan army and the and the government. On the west coast, so in the west western Myanmar, you also have the Chin group, who are a sort of Christian group, who um, have been. Uh, fighting the military since the 80s, 90s, that conflict has sort of died down, but that's flared up again since the coup. And then over the other side of the country, you have the the Kachin people who are sort of one of the more stronger ethnic armed groups. And then down that East Coast, the Kareni and the Karen in particular, excuse me, are um, are also 
fighting against the military. And these, these conflicts have really flared up since the coup. Many of the groups from, you know, they, for a long time, Myanmar only saw conflict in, in those sort of region, in, in those border areas. But since the coup, those, all of those groups, existing groups have linked up with, a, with what are called these people's defense forces, who are many of them operating kind of more in central Myanmar. Uh, and particularly the sort of north northwest, so there's there's been this kind of shift in the dynamics since the coup. It's been a pretty drastic one. You know, you you mentioned the the conflict in in Rakhine State, and um, you know, I think there, there's 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 been a lot of um, reporting of what's been happening to the to the Rohingya people, what what's been done to that community. Um, and while I think it, I, I do want to ask about the roots of, of, of that, um, of that, of that, of those actions taken against the Rohingya people, um, I do also want to note that your book talks with the other community in that region, which are, which is the Rakhine people and their perspective on this conflict, um, which I thought was very interesting too. Um, so I wonder if I might, if I might ask you to kind of talk about your experiences reporting in, in Rakhine state. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's a, it's a pretty, um, complicated issue as, as all of these issues are but it, it probably has its roots really going back as far as the again back to sort of second world war when th- there are a number of different communities in Rakhine state but two major ones the Rohingya who are Muslim and the Rakhine who are Buddhist and you know go, going back to the 40s and 50s when the Japanese and the British were fighting against each other that um, you had the Rohingya who were on the British side and the Rakhine who were on the Japanese side and there were flare-ups of violence as far back as the 40s 50s so that Distrust between the communities has existed for decades, um, but it really flared up in 2012 when there was sort of um, uh, ru- rumours had spread about um, a Rohingya people um, raping and killing a Rakhine woman, and then that flared up into the violence that we ev- then eventually saw in 2017. And I think you know a lot of the international media attention, of course, has been on the Rohingya because the oppression they have faced for decades is so horrendous, and the violence they saw is awful. But as I make the point in the book that I think sometimes missing from that reporting was the perspective of the Rakhine people. Um, and I remember a lot of reporting I found really problematic with um, certain journalists coming in was sort of portraying the Rakhine as kind of a baddie in this conflict as the, you know, I, you know, I have this really, I have a bit of an issue sometimes with simplistic, let's say, Western reporting on complex countries. And this is one example, I think, of that where people took it as, well, the Rakhine must have been attacking the Rohingya. Of course, there was violence between the communities, but the Rakhine also have a pretty long list of grievances themselves. And that was that was not really coming to the fore in some of the reporting. Um, this is, you know, Rakhine, the Rakhine coast in Myanmar is, one, it's actually a very beautiful place in terms of its scenery, but it's also got a lot of economic potential. It has oil and gas. It has, um, it sort of connects on the border with um, with India, also connects on the consul on that coastline with India. But it's remained sort of drastically poor. Um, the Rakhine people, um, it's sort of, I think it's its one of the poorest states or regions in the country, in an already very poor country. So, and a lot of people there are sort of forced to survive off pretty small industries such as fishing and things like that. Um, and they've also had their culture. Yeah, you know, the Rakhine people have a pretty, they're a pretty strong culture and identity themselves. And that's been kind of trampled down on for decades by successive military regimes as well. So I thought it was important to at least acknowledge that in some of the reporting. Um, and that's now led to one of the big conflicts we're seeing in Myanmar today, which has been the rise of the Arakan army. Um, that's sort of vying for autonomy for the Rakhine people itself. And that is, a, it's now turning into a pretty powerful army with its, um, links up again with other groups on the other side of the country. 
And so this is what happens, mm-hmm. right? If, if groups are ignored, if groups are pushed down, then sadly, sometimes we see this, this flare up of sort of violence and armed conflict, which is if we're seeing Rakhine as well as we're seeing sort of elsewhere in the country as well. You know, to, to, to change subjects, um, I mean, you, you, you do talk about some of the, the economic changes in Myanmar um, during the 21st century, but especially during its, its, its opening, I guess, after 2012. Um, you know, I mean, I, I was in Myanmar for various reasons, for work, for travel. And um, at the time, which I guess was, what, 2016 to 2018-ish, like it, Myanmar felt like a country that was developing very quickly. You noticed how cheap mobile internet got. That's something I noticed when I was there. Um, so from like an econo- I mean, from an economic development standpoint, um, I guess what was happening in Myanmar during the period that you were there, and then I guess in, in stri- the next step from that, what's been lost since uh, since the coup? Yeah, yeah. As you say, I mean that era, that sort of era of two thousand twelve ish onwards until the coup, really, there was a lot of optimism in Myanmar, and I think in you know, I, I guess I was living in Yangon at the time. So I saw a lot of this firsthand in Yangon. So I think, think some of the optimism, sort of the more economic development in Yangon was not necessarily spread all the way around the country, but Yangon was definitely a place where you were seeing incredible development. Like, I mean, a couple of the examples, you know, I could point to was, was you know, huge real estate development. So when I'd arrived in 2012, what had been sort of ramshackle buildings, whether you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, okay, fair enough, but buildings that have been disused for, decades really were being run down were being replaced with sort of shiny new condominiums and office spaces and show you know car showrooms of car companies that were coming in there were new cars on the roads because people could there was sort of new liberalization of um the import of vehicles so people suddenly there were new cars on the road as you mentioned um uh, sim card prices went dropped from um i think it was about 150 200 dollars to a dollar overnight so almost the whole, almost the entire nation went online overnight, and suddenly you had this rise in, you know, people getting access to the internet and things like that. Which, yes, it came with dark elements, as, as has been well reported with the use of Facebook, but it also gave people access to information and new ideas which they didn't have before. Uh, and in Yangon, in particular, I remember sort of spending a lot of time with certain members of the say, let's say, sort of entrepreneurs. Um, and there was a massive, again, people who, young people who had maybe lived most of their life under the military rule and didn't have access to, to really any jobs outside jobs within you know, either the military regime or crony companies now had were starting their own companies. Um, they were starting companies, whether it was in you know logistics firms or website design or event spaces and things. It was just a real, real um, time of optimism. Um, as I say, that wasn't necessarily being shared all around the country, but certainly in, in cities like Yangon, Mandalay, there was just more bars and restaurants and things were opening as well. And more, you know, young people were, gave a lot more choice. But as you say that since the coup, that's just completely, I mean, dropped off a cliff. The economy is an absolute free fall. Um, foreign investment has shrunk to, to real minimal numbers because of course, foreign companies don't want to go into one, one for the reputational risk of going into somewhere like Myanmar, which is under military, which the military is obviously in control, but also because there's no rule of law, there's no justice mechanism. You know, if if you have a company there, the military could just take it off you, and you've got almost no no space to kind of claim claim that back. Um, a lot of people, there's been a massive brain drain, as you'd expect in, in something like this. I mean, most of the friends I knew, whether they were journalists or people who'd set up businesses, have fled the country because they don't want to be to, to operate in this space anymore. 
Um, and yeah, really, the, the economy is 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 in a really really bad place, and that's a direct result of the military. Um, and things at this point they don't look like picking up at all because just the situation is 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 so bad right now. You know, speaking of this transition period um, between you know the opening in twenty twelve and the coup in twenty twenty one. You know, I want to talk about Aung San Suu Kyi, whose reputation has gone through a lot of ups and downs, uh, for lack of a better term, during this period. I mean, she leaves or or, or she enters um, this period of opening with a lot of goodwill, um, you know, being a political prisoner for so long in Myanmar. That reputation takes, I think, quite a serious hit in 2017 with the government's failure to really have a strong response, if any response, to... Um, what's happening in, in Rakhine State with the Rohingya. Um, but obviously her reputation has gone back up again, at least outside of Myanmar, due to the coup and her being put back in prison. Um, but given your time in Myanmar and given your reporting of what was happening there, um, I mean, what's your view of Aung San Suu Kyi, especially as she has often been placed as the focal point for Myanmar's democratic hopes? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the main takeaway really is that I think she's a, a, a complicated, like anyone, right? She's a complicated person. I, th- I don't think she's all, or necessarily all good or necessarily all bad. She's just, she's, she's flawed as any human is. Um, I think one of the, 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 the issues with some of this, I go back to some of what I think is overly simplistic reporting on Myanmar, back, back to the 90s, when there was sort of this, this simplistic narrative created about Myanmar as her as just the face of the democratic movement. And suddenly there was sort of this narrative created that I think a lot of, well, I know she believed certainly, and maybe people in Myanmar believed that she, you know, if she came along and she came to power, Myanmar's problems would be solved. You know, no, one, that doesn't, that's not how things work, right? Countries are complicated. They need a lot of people to take part in that nation building project. Um, and two, in particular, a country as complicated as Myanmar, it needs, you know, it needs input from a lot of different people. And I think she she bought into that narrative about herself. There, you know, even though she sort of she did try and push back back against it in certain ways, she also had this. I think there is an arrogance to her in her belief that um, she could sort of solve all of Myanmar's problems. Um, she played, you know, when she came to power after the 2015 election, she placed herself at the top of a bunch of ministries. We, I know from reporting at that time and speaking with people within the NLD who were too scared to speak out because they knew if they criticised her, they'd be kicked out of the party. So there was sort of this authoritarian bent to her. Um, she was also just removing people from people who really had also contributed to the kind of democratic movement in a way, were being being ousted from senior positions because she believed she could do everything herself. Um, and, and then to go back to the um, Rohingya situation, yeah, I mean, there was... I was in Yangon at the time in 2017, and there was a a lot of violence in terms of the language being used against the Rohingya because they were seen as these perceived outsiders because of the narrative the military had helped create about the group. They were these kind of um, outsiders from Bangladesh. And I think she was in a, a position at that time to have spoken up and called for unity and called for calm among communities and I think there was a real missed opportunity from her there to kind of actually be a, a, a moral leader. Um, and she didn't do that. And she, she sided kind of with the, she well, not only did she sort of side with the military, there's a legitimate argument that she couldn't have stopped the military doing what it did, but she could have definitely used her position in, as a more, more, from a more moral stance. And she didn't do that. Um, and, but there, you know, there, where we are today, as you say, I've 
she's sadly this this individual who whatever you think about her has lived a hell of a life is now sadly looking to be spending the rest of her days in um either house arrest or prison in Myanmar, which is i think a really tragic scenario um but i would say there's a slight i, I guess one of the few positives of the situation in Myanmar is what what used to be a very simplistic narrative about the democratic movement in Myanmar and just her as the face of it the people sort of rising up against the military today have very much moved beyond her as the, the kind of figurehead of the movement. And it's much more about, it's less about one figurehead um, and much more about, okay, th- these are the efforts to remove the military from power overall. To then flip that a bit, there is also issue with that because it's not getting, I don't, I think one of the positives of the, um, so I'm j- jumping around a lot, but it's quite a complicated issue. Um, I think one of the, while I have issue with the simplistic narrative, what that about her as the lead of democracy that did garner international media attention. Now, I think one of the reasons maybe Myanmar has, is not getting the attention that many people want is because there isn't this kind of one figurehead to pin the narrative on. Um, so yeah, a very complicated figure, one who's lived a remarkable life, one who I don't think is as good or bad as people portray, but one who I think is is flawed like any human is. Well, you know, maybe let's talk about what's happened in Myanmar since the coup and the development of the of the resistance against um, against against the new junta. Whether it's it's more civil disobedience or or um, or or you know open organized conflict. Um, I, I guess you know you get the sense that like comparing to previous um, responses to coups and previous protests, twenty twenty one. The coup there felt different. Like it felt like it was the response to it seems much more um, universal and long-lasting. And um, compared to, I guess, the very bloody crackdowns in '88 and things like that. Um, but I guess how has the how has the resistance to the coup um, developed since the coup happened in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I was just yesterday speaking with a, a former colleague who was in Yangon at the time of the coup. And I sort of asked him about it. Obviously, I was in Bangkok at the time. <clears throat> and I, you, sort of, you often forget this, that when the coup took place, the first couple of weeks was, was very much a kind of carnival atmosphere. People were going out. They were kind of making funny jokes about the military leader. They were you know, doing things like pretending to have dropped onions to block police cars coming through. And there was a very kind of fun atmosphere in the first few weeks as people kind of uh, protested against this coup. That the kind of deadly turn uh, emerged, you know, it happened a few weeks later and suddenly when the military turned to that violent response, that's when things really escalated heavily. Um, the civil disobedience movement, so this was a movement that started a few days after the coup by people who worked for um, the government, whether it was doctors or people working in various different departments of the government, refused to go to work under the military. And that's sort of continuing, it's called, known as the CDM, the civil disobedience movement. Excuse me. And that's continuing in many ways today where these sort of doctors who had formerly been part of the military are now sort of part of the resistance and are working uh, in underground health centres, for example, or underground schools that are led by the National Unity Government, which is the um, the opposition um, formed of MPs who had been elected in that 2020 election. Um, but of course, the 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 large larger part of the resistance is this armed uprising, the armed resistance, and this is often. Um, I mean, spoke to a number of these people and these before the coup, these were kind of like students in universities in Yangon or people who worked in jobs in, you know, the media or worked in, uh, you know, tech companies. They've now fled their pretty comfortable lives in Yangon, so the border areas to take up arms against the military, such as their 
um, desire to see the military removed from power. Um, and they've, these, these, there's many different groups. That a lot of them have sort of formed these what are known as People's Defence Forces. And I think when these PDFs were formed, they weren't given much of an opportunity. I think in terms of the way people spoke about them, people really didn't believe that they would do particularly well militarily against the military, right? Militaries are very powerful, you know, as, as problematic as it is an institution, it's a, it's a strong institution. It's been around a long time. It's got strong weapons. Uh, and people didn't really, I don't think, believe they could do very well against the military, but they really have. They've taken, you know, they've been, you know, they've, they've um, improved their training capabilities. They've improved their supply lines of weapons and they're, they're making a lot of gains against the military um, in a lot of different areas around the country. Whether, whether that will be enough to defeat the military is another question, I think. But um, there has been this this kind of, um, uh, as I say, this this massive improvement in the capabilities of these PDFs, um, and now you know. But sadly, I think you know we're not we're not. I don't see a point in the in the near future where conflict will come to a close. It just it feels like this could be a very prolonged conflict that could go on for a long time. You know, I think su- suffice to say that you um, support, I think, stronger international action. Um, against Myanmar, you know, tougher sanctions, tougher enforcement against um, military-owned, junta-owned businesses, um, et cetera, like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess my my question um, is, you know, these actions may be, may be the smart thing to do, the right thing to do, the morally correct thing to do, but in terms of, in terms of staying within kind of what's plausible, do you see any international action being able to affect uh, affect the the outcome of the resistance of the conflict in Myanmar and actually um, getting the junta to go back to the barracks um, again, not to dismiss the, the 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 correctness or the or the or the or the moral principle of taking you know stronger sanctions, um, but but will they actually affect things on the ground? Yeah, no, I think it's a really fair question and important one to consider all this, right? Um, I, I think the the main thing to consider is that Myanmar. I think whatever happens in Myanmar in the future will be driven primarily by the dynamics inside the country. I think um, whether that's the conflict, whether that's the you know the, the 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 emergence of the national unity government, whether they can gain sort of international recognition and essentially remove the military power, that will be the main um, um, factor in in whether the military can be removed from power. I think in terms of international intervention, you know, I think it won't, it won't be one thing that brings the military to its knees. It will be a, a multitude of different factors, I think, that will eventually, if, if this does happen. And I think the international community can play a part. As you say, I don't, I don't think on, on its own, the, the, you know, international governments can necessarily bring about the demise of military, but they can sort of work in tandem with, let's say, pro-democracy forces in Myanmar. Uh, and sanctions um, are important, right? You know, you may not be able to cut off every single um, dollar that the military makes, but it, if you can take every step possible um, to do what you can, because the, the issue with the military, right, they have so, they're such an opaque organization, institution, understanding where their money comes from is, you know, whether that's whether it's legal uh, industries or legal industries such as jade mining, timber, drugs even, it's hard. It's going to be really, really challenging to to identify those revenue channels and, and cut them off. But I think you can do as much as you can. And, and a lot of just I just saw sanctions from the UK just the other day. These these kind of rolling out of sanctions are good. 
But as, as sort of activists who work on this issue more closely, they keep calling for more sanctions, just keep kind of going forward and, and identifying every single area that the military makes money and cut them off. Um, I think other areas too is things such as um, international justice mechanisms. You know, one of the reasons that some people argue, okay, well, it won't do anything or it won't do anything for a long time, so why bother? But I think that's kind of a, I don't think that's a fair argument. I think the reason the military, the reason the coup took place was because the military has got away with doing whatever it wants for so long. And there are now there are international justice mechanisms in place, in large part in response to 2017 and what happened to the Rohingya. And I think supporting those are, they do send a message to to people and say, you know, one day your day in court will hopefully come. And I think sort of stepping up those measures are an important step. Um, and then also there's a side of sort of supporting, um, whether whether it's supporting the national unity government directly. Um, I don't think we're going to see a time when they're recognized, not yet recognised as the government. I, mean, I know people are calling for that, but realistically, given the circumstances, I don't really think that's realistic. But what what um i think can be done is 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 lending support to the national unity government lending support to a lot of different groups that are often operating in exile that are working for democracy building up offering them funding offering them training in whatever areas they need to try and build up those kind of pro democratic forces um i i would say that i think this this belief that some countries seem to have that oh Myanmar is a military rule well you know it just needs to kind of consolidate the military. I think as long as the military remains in power, Myanmar will only see more violence. Uh, it's a it's an incredibly violent institution. Um, it will only lead to more insecurity. So I think supporting um, sort of democratic forces in the country is is really the only logical step. Um, and that, and that's for not and that's not just as you say it's not just because it's the right thing to do from a moral kind of purpose, but also for, for the for the region, the ASEAN region itself. Um, you know, countries such as Thailand, countries such as India, even China, their 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 interests will not be protected long term if the military remains in power. Um, so I think it's it's about really, as I say, supporting pushing and pulling different levers, working in tandem with pro democracy forces. It you know no one has a crystal ball, right? No one can predict what will happen. But I think those are the kind of most uh, effective measures that, that the international community can take. You know, I, I want to end by kind of going back to to you and, and why you wanted to, to write this book. I mean, as you said at the very beginning, that this, this book's been in the works for a long time. Um, and you've it's gone through lots of changes and lots of um, changes in terms of focus and framing and tone. Um, but I guess why why did you want to write this book and actually you know complete complete this book after after so many years of of working on it? Yeah, I mean, I think the first first thing that comes to mind is I really I think I feel like I had something to say. You know, I recognise that I'm um, a foreigner who who is not a Myanmar person, and I'm writing about the country, and I understand that some people may have questions about that. But I spent I spent a lot of time in Myanmar. I travelled an awful lot during a period that. I don't think many other people did inside the country and spoke to a lot of people. And um, I really, I feel like this book has something to say. Yeah. So I think the the main reason that I wrote this book was because I think I had something to say. I spent a lot of time in Myanmar in, you know, between 2012 and 2020 and traveled pretty, I mean, I traveled to all of its states and regions several times in many cases. Um, And I think not many, it was something that I don't think many other people did. And I, 
I've met a lot of people along the way who had things to say. And as I say, I think this this book is really um, about trying to draw out Myanmar voices. As I say, I recognise that some people may have questions because I'm not, I'm not I am a foreigner. Um, I'm not a Myanmar person, uh, and I'm writing a book about Myanmar. But I think, as I say, I spent a lot of time in the country, invested pretty heavily in my time there, spoke to a lot of people. And I think, as I say, um, I really wanted to try and really draw out Myanmar voices. And I think if hopefully if people read the book, that comes across pretty heavily. I haven't put too much of myself in the book. It's not about me moralizing and telling the Myanmar people what to do, but drawing heavily on what the people I met want and, and what they've experienced under this military. Um, so I think that first and foremost is the main thing. And um, there was a second bit, which I'm not remembering now. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think a focus on, on the military itself. Um, there's been a lot of great books on Myanmar, um, but they do tend to be a bit more academically driven, a bit maybe less accessible. The aim of this book was to be quite an accessible book for people who, you know, as I was writing it, I had a kind of ideal reader in mind. And it was someone who <clears throat> was, let's say, could point to Myanmar on a map, knew a little bit about its history, but was wanted to delve a bit more deeper into the issues. Um, so I've tried to kind of marry a kind of what I think is quite an in-depth understanding of the country, but not to go too heavily in depth and make it accessible to people um, who who want to understand more. And the feedback so far has been good. People have told me that that's that's what was achieved. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. Uh, and I think I guess I think finally the one thing that I'd like to do is is to um, there's sometimes this assumption that Myanmar is inevitably a military state, it will inevitably return to military rule, but I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. And I think um, the Myanmar people want democracy. They've seen what democracy looks like. Um, and I think there is sometime in the future, hopefully soon, because we want to see an end to this, the, the violence and the conflict, but hopefully at some point in the future, there will be a time where Myanmar becomes a, a largely, okay, there are going to be issues with any transition rights away from the military, but a largely peaceful place with, you know, where federalism is respected, you know, a place that sees development and sees kind of a general upward trajectory in its, its um, the way it's going. And I hope, hopefully this book can, you know, play some some role in that by helping people understand the complexities of this play, of this country. I think that's a great place to end our interview with Oliver Slow, author of Return of the Junta, Why Myanmar's Military Must Go Back to the Barracks. Oliver, I actually have two more questions for you, um, which are, where can people find your work, um, the book and anything else you've done? Um, and uh, what might be coming next? What might your next project be? Sure. Yeah, so in terms, I have a website. It's uh, oliverslow.com, and it has um, some more information about the book um, and some, some of the work I've been doing. In terms of where it's available, um, it's, it's being published with Bloomsbury, so it's available on Bloomsbury's website. Uh, it's available on Amazon. And I'm led to believe it's in a, a number of bookstores around. I, have, I haven't actually seen it in a bookstore myself, but I, I, I know some people have. I think in, in people in Asia, um, in Bangkok, Asia Books has it, Bangkok. Um, and in terms of what's next, well, in the immediate future, actually, my partner just had a baby. Um, literally, I think it was a week after the book came out. So the, uh, thank you. So at the moment, um, it's just about kind of enjoying time as a family and, and, and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm working on a couple of projects. Um, one is a non-fiction book, which is, as much as I can say, is much more about the legacy of British colonial rule, um, closer to home. I would say, I'll only say that much so far because I'm still working on 
um, on that. But but yeah, that's that's an idea I have. Yeah, that's probably the, the next next big project I'd like to kind of delve into. Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more off interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Books Podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, Oliver, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks very much, Yutan. I really appreciate it.